This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. With you, please open to the book of Colossians, the book of Colossians. If you need a Bible, you can go ahead and put your hand up. We have some in the back. You'd be happy to run a Bible out to you. We want to make sure that everyone has a copy of God's Word in front of them today. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 this morning. And as you turn to Colossians chapter 3, I recently heard a story about a man named Benjamin who had this beautiful garden. And he tended to this garden carefully. He applied himself to it daily in a diligent way. And under his skillful hands, this this garden really flourished. And one day he was called away on business, and so he knew he'd be away for some length of time. And so he gave his family careful instructions about how to care for the garden in his absence. He went away for several weeks, and when he returned, he found that his garden was in complete disarray. Now, this was not because his family had neglected to care for it. No, they'd actually spend a lot of time tending to the garden, but they'd done so not in the way that Benjamin had instructed them to. They'd come up with their own plan. They had thought they could improve upon Benjamin's plan because Benjamin's plan was a little dated. It it happened several weeks ago. He didn't understand the current times that the garden needed, so they came up with their own way of caring for this garden, and as a result, the garden was no longer a garden. It was a mud pile full of weeds. That happened because they did not follow the instructions of their master gardener. In our text today, we're going to see God giving us some instructions about how he wants us to tend to our relationships with one another. Throughout Colossians, there's been this theme of the church, not as a place that we attend, but as a people that we are part of. And earlier in the chapter, we saw Paul talk about how God wants us to be knit together with one another as we grow in Christ. You see, God's a being who exists in community. He exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God in three persons. And so as people made in his image and in his likeness, God has designed us to be people who need to be in community with other people in order to flourish in life. And that's what his church is. It is a community brought together by our shared faith in Jesus. And God deeply loves and cares about his church. And so like Benjamin with his garden, since God cares about his church, God's left us careful instructions that we need to follow in order to flourish together. We are not to come up with our own ideas about what the church is meant to be. We're not meant to change the church with the times. No, we're meant to take God's transcendent truth and apply it in timely ways to how he wants us to live out our lives together as his people. Last week, Pastor Caleb walked us through the first part of chapter 3 of Colossians where we see some some weeds that we need to pull, some things that we need to put off that can harm our relationships with one another. Today, we're going to see some things that we need to put on, some things that we need to be 
in order to flourish together. I entitled this morning's sermon, What Jesus Wants for His Church. What Jesus Wants for His Church. Let's read together in Colossians chapter 3, verses 12 through 17. This is God's holy, inerrant, inspired, and authoritative word. Let's listen to Him. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We had a time of congregational prayer. Let's now take a time of private prayer and ask that God would speak to us through preaching of his word. So let's bow our heads. Would you just ask God to help you hear what he wants to say to you today? Now please pray for me, that God would help me speak in a way that is clear and helpful to you, and that honors him above all. God, thank you for your word, which is a light to guide us in darkness, which shows us who you are, which displays your heart and your love. Help us to hear your voice today. Would you meet us and speak to us? And Lord, you change us and transform us. We pray this for the glory of Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So as we make our way through these five verses, I think these five verses give us five things that Jesus wants for his church. Now normally I would not preach a five-point sermon. That is not very advisable. However, um, it's usually yeah, much easier to go kind of slow and meticulously through things. Two and three point sermons are far easier to preach. Uh, but sometimes if you go too slow, you miss the big picture. So sometimes it's good to go slow and focus on even just a word. But other times it's important to see the whole force of what God is trying to say. And I think this is a whole force kind of text that we need to see what God's trying to say about what Jesus wants for his Church, And so here's the first thing that we see in this passage that Jesus wants for his church. Jesus wants his love to define us. Jesus wants his love to define us. This passage is filled with 14 different commands. God is clearly calling us to all kinds of activity. But notice how this passage starts. It does not start with our activity, but starts with reminding us about our identity. It says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Three rich phrases that are reminding us and pressing us into who we are 
as those who believe in Jesus Christ. And we need to start here because as Christians, our activity is always meant to be fueled by our, our identity. If we get that backward, then we fall into a works-based salvation that will produce no lasting godliness in our lives. And so if you have placed your faith in Jesus, you need to be reminded this morning, we need to be reminded this morning that we are we're God's chosen ones. God's chosen ones. If you love God, you know God, and you want to live for God, it's not because you went searching for God and chose him. Oh, sure, you might have always believed in God, but believing God does not mean that you're truly living with him as your God. All of us are born with a natural inclination to be away from God, not turned towards God. We might believe in some kind of religion. We might sprinkle in some spirituality, but really we are in control. We want to make all the choices. And so we might give lip service to God, but we're born with the desire to live as the gods of our own lives. Ephesians 2 chapter 1 calls this being dead in our sins. It doesn't mean that we are as bad as we possibly could be. No, it means that our hearts are dead towards God. We just want to live for ourselves. And you know what dead people can't do? Dead people can't will themselves to life. But praise God, we serve a God who knows how to bring the dead to life. And that's what God has done for us in Christ. If you are here and you believe in Jesus, if you have come to know him, that's because he took his resurrection power paddles and hooked them up to your sin-deadened hearts and brought you to life in him. As Jesus says in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. Or as Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 1.14, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you. Friends, if we're here and we love Christ, that's not because we are the hero of our story. No, it's because we have a hero who chose to write a chapter into our story of his rescue of us. We have a hero who saw us running our hellbound race and he decided to stop us in our tracks and to bring us to life in him. We have a hero who not only loves the world in general, but if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that's because he knows you by name, he chose you by name, and he made you his. And if you have yet to place your faith in Jesus, I believe it's your opportunity today that God has you listening to this. You could be so many different places. There could be so many different reasons why you are in this moment right now. But here's what God is doing through all those reasons, through all those things why. You could be a million different places. Why are you here? Because God knows your name. Because you are on his heart. Because he loves you. And he wants you to come to believe in him today. And I pray with all my heart that today be the day where you give your life to Christ. And if you do, here's what you will come to know. You'll come to know a God that doesn't just have this general love. You'll come to know the God who has a specific love. You'll come to know the God who chose you. To be a Christian is to be someone who is chosen. And as verse 12 goes on to say, not only chosen, but to be someone who is holy. Now, when we hear that word holy, I think typically we can think about moral Purity, and purity is certainly an implication of holiness, but it's not the, the whole meaning of that word. Holiness most literally means to be set apart. It, it's a word that's used extensively throughout the Old Testament, the books written before Jesus came. And it was not actually used often to refer to people. 
it was far more often used to refer to things. So various items in the temple would be set apart as holy, right? You'd have a holy cup. It looked like a normal cup, but what made it a holy cup was it had been set apart for sacred use. In order for it to be set apart for sacred use, it would have to go through a ritual cleansing process so that all of its impurities could be removed from it. And so for a holy thing is something that's been set apart as spiritually clean. And so to be a holy person is to be someone who has been set apart by God and has been made spiritually clean. All our impurities, all our sins, all our guilt, all our shame have been washed away. And it is not through our actions, it is not through our acts of penance, it is not through our good deeds. No, 1 John 1, 7 says, it is the blood of Jesus that cleanses us. This is what the cross is all about, friends. The cross of Jesus Christ, we are not seeing an innocent person dying out of a great act of love. No, we're seeing the Holy Son of God being made to be sin. There's not an innocent person on the cross. No, there is the most guilty person who's ever lived. As all our sins are put on Christ. And 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him to be sin who knew no sin. On the cross, our sins are put on Jesus and he becomes our guilt. He, he, he becomes our shame. And then therefore, because he has become that, the judgment that sin rightfully deserves descends upon him. And he gave his life. He shed his blood so that we could be cleansed. The reason there is no judgment left for us to face is because Jesus took it all in our place. He chose us to be his, and he has now made us holy by shedding his blood to wash away our sins, all our sins past, all our sins present, and yes, even all our sins still future. And he did this because he loves us. We are chosen, we are holy, and we are beloved. As the Christian Standard Version would say, we are dearly loved by God. Friends, God, through no merit of our own, but surely by an act of his great grace, has chosen to set his affections upon us. And he chose to do this knowing our sin. It's not like he did it and then we sin, and he's like, oh man, had I known they would have done that, I never would have loved them in the first place. No, he loved us in the first place, so that even when we did sin, he already had a plan in place for the salvation of our sin. God loved us, knowing our sin, and knowing what our sin would cost him. And yet he chose to love us, so that we could be cleansed, so that we could be holy, so that we could be His. 
And his love is so great, friends, that we shouldn't just settle for knowing about it. We shouldn't even just settle for believing it. No, God wants us to be defined by his love. There is to be nothing that is to be more valuable to us. There is to be nothing that is to be more satisfying to us. There is to be nothing that is more to us than his love. His love is meant to be our everything. We are to think of ourselves primarily as the beloved of God. And this is what Jesus wants to be at the heart of his church. He wants us to define ourselves by his love. He wants his love to define us. And then second point, he wants his character to shape us. He wants his character to shape us. In verses 12 through 15, we are given nine different character traits. And these nine different things are not random. They're all qualities that characterize Jesus' life. And they're things that are vital for us to be able to have healthy relationships with one another. And so we saw in verses 4 through 11, that Pastor Caleb preached about last week, it really outlines sins that tear our relationships apart. Here we're now seeing Jesus talk about the godly things that are meant to bring us together. And so first, we are to have compassionate hearts for one another. That word compassion literally means to feel with. Compassion means to care about people's cares. To feel with them the suffering they're feeling for themselves. To be compassionate is to be moved by people's needs. Throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus consistently being described as someone who is moved by compassion. He saw suffering, and he was not just kind of above the fray. No, his heart was affected by what he saw going on around him. And that compassionate heart moved him to take actions of kindness, which is the second character trait that we see mentioned here in this passage. Kindness is the outworking of a compassionate heart. Because kindness is the choice to do good towards others. When someone is hurting, a heart of compassion moves towards them with the action of kindness. One of my favorite experiences as a pastor is when I hear that there's someone in our church going through a hard time, and yet before Pastor Matt, Pastor Caleb, or I can show up and to extend care, You've already been there caring for them. I love to hear about community groups that apart from us doing anything have already stepped in to, hey, we'll provide meals for them. We'll provide rides to the doctor. Hey, you have kids. Let us take your kids. We'll care for them so that you can get this rest that you need. I love to hear about, hey, I'm, you know, I'm going to go pray for someone, yet there's someone already there praying for them. You know, I sent an encouraging text. Thank you. You're the fifth person from the church to encourage me today. That blesses my heart to hear because this is the kind of community that God wants us to be. He wants us to be people that are so filled with compassion for each other that we're committed to doing tangible acts of kindness towards one another. We hear a need and we don't expect that someone else is just going to meet that need. No, we step in and through prayer and through encouragement and through doing practical things, we show kindness to that person. Because that's the kind of compassion in our hearts that God wants us to have. He wants us to be people filled with compassion and move towards kindness. And not just to the world in general. Like, sure, we should maybe do that just in general for people. But the context here is Jesus is talking about his church. He's talking about how we are meant to be as his community together. And so where the kindness should most be felt is in our relationships with each other. 
But in order to have compassionate hearts and to be committed to doing acts of kindness, we'll need humility, which is the next character trait. Humility allows us to serve others without caring about what we get in return. Because humility means that we're not consumed with thinking about ourselves. Pastor Tim Keller, I think, gave one of the best definitions of humility that I've heard. Humility does not mean thinking less of yourself. Humility means just thinking of yourself less. And so humble people, because they're thinking of themselves less, humble people are willing to do whatever it takes to serve others because you aren't in it for yourself. You're not thinking about yourself. You're just thinking about how you can care for people in need. And friends, this is the heart of Christ. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that in humility, Jesus did not hold on to his rights as the king of the universe, but he humbled himself, that text says, and became one of us so that he could meet our greatest need and die on the cross to pay for our sins. His compassion led him to take action, and it was his humility that meant he was willing to do whatever it took. And so he came. And here's how he came. He came not with strength to blow away his enemies, but he came with, as we see in the next character trait, he came with meekness to rescue us. That word meekness could also be translated as gentleness. You know, it's at the heart of Jesus. We're told in Matthew 11, chapter, verse 28, this is at the heart of Jesus. He is gentle. And lowly of heart. He's not proud. He's lowly. He's humble. He's not harsh. But he's gentle. And careful. See being gentle with someone. Is a willingness to deal with them. Carefully. So that as much as you can. You don't add to their hurt. And so. Gentleness and meekness. We need to understand. Our world would maybe look at that as weakness, but meekness is not weakness. Meekness is strength under control. Because in order to be careful with something, you need to be strong. If you lift a heavy weight and you're weak, you're not going to be able to be careful with it. It's just going to come crashing right back down. In order to lift something heavy and be careful with it, you have to be really, really strong. It takes strength, friends. To be careful with other people. It takes strength to be careful with our words. It takes strength to be thoughtful in how we interact with one another. And so Christ wants us to learn more and more how to walk in his strength and be gentle with each other as he has been so gentle with us. In order to be gentle, we're going to need to be patient with one another. Patience is a willingness to suffer long, to not quickly blow up, but to bear with one another, as the text says. To bear means that it's hard, but I'm not willing to let go. The call to patience and bearing with one another assumes that our relationships with each other will not always be easy. You don't need patience for things that are easy. You don't need to bear with people They're just always enjoyable to be around. This assumes that our relationships are going to be difficult 
at times. This assumes that we will do stuff towards each other that will require patience. This assumes that we'll do stuff that will require us being willing to bear with one another in order to work through those things. But we want to be able to put in that effort. Why? Because Christ is patient with us. Because Christ suffers long with us. Because Christ bears so much for us. And as we are patient with each other, and as we are bearing with one another, we are to work towards forgiveness, as the text says. We're not to be like the world and just cancel each other. We're not to be like the world and gossip about one another. No, what should be happening in the church is that we are a radical counterculture where the only people who know you have offense with them is the people that are directly involved in the situation. The church is to be a counterculture where we don't talk about each other, but we talk to each other. And we work through things with forgiving hearts. Because sinners who have tasted the sweet forgiveness of Christ should be eager to show his forgiveness to others. In other words, forgiven sinners should know well how to forgive sin. And verse 15 tells us that all these character traits are meant to be held together by love. Being defined by Jesus' love is meant to turn us into loving people. And so we just need to be really clear. This is not a checklist about having moral behavior. No, this is about having character that is shaped by Christ, which means that we can't do these things ourselves. We need Him. And so if you go through this list and you are like me, and you're acutely aware, or maybe even ways this week you've not been gentle as you should have been. You've not been as patient with someone as you should have been. Last night, I was correcting my children, and I was not gentle with them as I did so with my words. I was not patient with them. And so if you're anything like me, and you are acutely aware of how you need to grow, friends, what we need is not greater self-effort. What we need is to see more of Christ's love, to understand more of who Jesus is. And the more we see, the more of who Jesus is. Oh, his love pours into our hearts and just transforms us more and more to be people who are changed into having his character flow out of us. The more we're defined by his love, the more we see and savor the beautiful love of Jesus most prominently displayed on the cross, the more we see him, 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us, the more we will become like him. My grandparents have been married now for, I think, going on almost 70 years. And they spent so much time together that they're just like each other. Like they're just, it's hard to know where one begins and the other ends. They're just shaped by one another because they've spent so much time. This is how God wants us to be shaped by him. He wants us to see him, to spend so much time with him that, 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 that we just become shaped more and more by who he is. He wants his love to define us. He wants his character to shape us. Point number three, he wants his peace to rule us. He wants his peace to rule us. That word rule in verse 15 means to act as an arbiter, to act as a judge, deciding what is right. It means to govern. And so here's what this text is saying. Here's what Christ wants for us in our relationships with each other. When we think about how we should act 
or how we should react, what we choose to say, what we choose not to say, what we choose to do, what we choose not to do. The, the question that should decide all those choices, the question that should govern us, that we should let rule us, the question is this, will this promote the peace of Christ? Will this promote the peace of Christ? That where peace means more than just a cessation of hostility. It means wholeness, wellness, flourishing. And notice Paul says it is the peace of Christ. And so what this is saying is that seeing someone flourish, seeing someone thrive in their spiritual life in Christ, in their relationship with Jesus, that should be what rules us. That should be what helps us decide what we should do and shouldn't do. Several years ago, our pastoral team was dealing with a difficult situation where we were being accused of things that honestly just weren't true. And I really appreciate how Pastor Matt in particular just kept focusing us, uh, focusing us uh, uh, as a pastoral team. He just kept bringing us back to this question, hey guys, let's remember, in this situation our goal is to care for these people, not just to prove that we're right. And, and, and when that question, what he was doing, he was just making sure that it was the peace of Christ that was ruling us, not just vindication for ourselves. And that's the right thing to do because this peace that Paul is talking about, this is not a trivial thing. Notice what he says, we're called to let the peace of Christ rule us. Why? Because we're called into one body. Friends, God has not only saved us individually, he saved us to be part of his people, to be part of his church, to be part of his body. And so disharmony in the church is as serious as disharmony in your body. If your body is not in harmony with one another, you're going to get into all kinds of problems. And so if your leg that wants to go one way, another leg wants to go another way, and you're fighting against each other, guess what? You're going to be spending a whole lot of effort, and you're not going to be moving anywhere. Your body's in disharmony. It's not going to make any sense. God does not want us in the church to be living in that kind of disharmony at cross purposes with one another. No, he wants us to be living in harmony with each other so that we can move forward together into the purposes he has for us in Christ. And so he gives us here some very practical instructions about how we are to let the peace of Christ rule us. Notice, Paul closes this exhortation on letting the peace of Christ rule our hearts by saying, be thankful. Be thankful. It's hard to be angry with someone and thankful for them at the same time. It's hard to be hurt by someone and thankful for them at the same time. It's hard to take offense at someone and be thankful for them at the same time. And so how we move into peace with others is by cultivating more gratitude in our hearts for them. If you're struggling with peace right now in some relationships, how God wants you to be ruled by his peace, how he wants you to move from just wanting to be against them in disharmony with them, how he wants to move you to letting the peace of Christ, to truly desiring to see them flourish with the Lord, how he wants to move you into that position is by giving you a heart of thanks for them. Thankful hearts help us to see God, to see that he's always at work, to believe how God can be at work, to believe that he will be at work. And so we're expressing thanks for the work he's already doing. Thankful hearts help us to move from anger and disharmony with one another into peace with each other. 
And so Jesus wants his love to define us. He wants his character to shape us. He wants his peace to rule us. And point number four, he wants his word to dwell in us. He wants his word to dwell in us. How we come to know God is through the word of God. And so verse 16 tells us, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. To dwell means to make itself at home. When I go away and stay in an Airbnb, like I rest there, but I'm not at home there. Like you don't go into an Airbnb and like start putting up your own pictures. <laughs> That'd be really weird. And in my case, that should be really big problem because I don't know how to even hang a picture straight. And so you just imagine someone coming back to their Airbnb rental and be like, who's that really weird looking guy and why is it crooked? You know? Um, we don't make ourselves at home. Why? Because we're just temporarily staying there. But when you buy a house and you move into it, there's that period where it's the house you bought. But then over time, as you unpack the boxes, over time, as you begin to make your marks on the wall, over time, as you start to dwell there, that house gets turned into a home. This is how God wants us to be with his word. He doesn't want it to be a place that we temporarily go to here or there. He wants it to be a place that we come in and we start unpacking some boxes. That we come in and we stay. He wants it to be a place that we dwell in. So that we can be shaped by him. And friends, this is not something that we can do by ourselves. But verse 16 tells us that part of how God's word dwells in us is through us teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. What is wisdom? The word of God. And so what are we supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be admonishing, which sometimes means correcting, and we're to be teaching one another with what? Not our opinions, not our preferences, not our life experiences. With what? With the word of God, with God's wisdom. And so sometimes people will come to me and ask for my opinion on things. I'm like, you must not know me that well, because I don't have a, I got a lot of opinions, not many of them are good opinions. And so, generally what I want to do is like, hey, regardless of what I think, let's just open God's word, let's see what he says. Well, let's see what God says about this situation. See, friends, one of the best ways that you can bless other people is by you getting to know God's word, so that you then have a word to share with them when they need it. God wants you to get to know him personally through his word. But not just personally, he wants you to get to know him personally through his word so then you can be part of helping his word dwell in other people even more richly. And I, I just have to say this, I, I recently saw this poll that honestly has troubled my spirit. According to this recent poll from Gallup, the average Christian spends seven hours a day on their phone and 30 minutes a week in the Bible. Let that sink in. It's not speaking about non-Christians. That's polling people who say they are followers of Jesus. And I hear that poll and I just have to wonder, if we're constantly scrolling through things, constantly listening to things, constantly watching things that are not God's word, then how can we possibly think that we're being shaped by God's word? If we're on our phone seven hours a day in God's word and consistently a few minutes a week, then who are we really following? Now, I'm not saying that we should only read the Bible. Listen, I read all kinds of books. I have all kinds of shows that I like. I like watching movies. Uh, I'm going to enjoy watching the Phillies game later on this afternoon. Like, praise God for all those good gifts. God's made us good gifts to enjoy, and we dishonor the giver when we neglect his gifts. So enjoy the good gifts of God. 
but make sure that those gifts direct you to the giver. And make sure that those gifts never replace the giver of the gifts because he is greater than them all. And so part of how we meet the giver of the gifts is through his word and through us talking with each other about his word. And so that means that we need to be in his word on a consistent basis. And part of how we are able to do this with one another is not just in conversation, but I I love what verse 16 says. It says part of how we do this is we sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Part of how God's word dwells in us richly, not in me personally, but in us together as his church, is through us singing together. All kinds of different songs, but with one common emotion. Singing these songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. Taylor Swift was recently in our city, in case you were sleeping under a rock and missed that. Um, I'm sure if you were driving, you did not miss that because she caused all kinds of traffic problems. Um, and I heard she said sorry, but like, I don't know, I didn't get that time back into my schedule, so what's her sorry going to do for me? But um, anyways, then she said she was an Eagles fan, and that made me feel even better, so I do forgive Taylor Swift. So if she's listening to this, I forgive you. Um, you go to a Taylor Swift concert, and you'll see people singing. I didn't go, but this is what I hear. Uh, you know, you'll see people singing loudly. You'll see people raising their hands. You'll see people even at times in tears. And it's this communal experience. Like, why do people go to concerts? You get better sound quality at home. You can see the performer more clearly from home. Like, why do people go and pay hundreds, if not thousands of dollars to sit in the nosebleeds to hear, you know, music being distorted through loudspeakers, to see someone on screen that, like, you can barely meet? Why do they do that? Because they're doing it together. And there's something powerful that happens when people come together and sing. Concerts are powerful because when people come together and sing together, there's something emotionally that happens that cannot happen in other ways. Friends, that's actually by design by the designer of God. The reason we respond that way is because God has created us to respond that way. Read the Psalms and see how often it says, all peoples clap your hands. All people raise your hands. People sing loudly. It's commanding people to express their praise in emotional ways. Why? Because God has designed music to stir our hearts with affection. And he means it to be this communal experience that we have with one another. And so I'm just wondering, like, if that can happen at a Taylor Swift concert, why is it not happening more as a church? Friends, singing here should rival singing nowhere else. This should be the place where we have the most to be thankful for. And thankful worship should always be worship that is filled with expression. If I were to say to you, thank you so much for what you did for me today. I'm so grateful for it. Versus, thank you so much for what you did today. I'm so grateful that you would do that. Which expression would you feel more thanked by? Well, hey, are you saying that this person doesn't actually feel thanks? No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying that that person who's just monotone, standing there with their hands in their pocket, isn't expressing much thanks. Maybe their heart is filled with thanks. I'm not here to judge anyone's heart. I'm just saying that that's not going to be very encouraging to me if you come up to me and be like, thank you so much for the sermon today. It was such a blessing to my soul. And I don't think you would feel that blessed either if that's how I thanked you. God's created us to be people who express our thanks with emotion. And so listen, I know that like it is a weird thing in our culture. I'm not exactly sure why. 
but it's very normal to go to Taylor Swift concerts and sing songs that don't mean anything with all kinds of expression, but then come to church, and man, we bury our hands in our pocket, we better not look, don't look at anyone, look at the screen, be as emotionless as possible. Friends, I think that breaks the heart of God, just to be honest with you. If there's one place that we should come in and we should be filled with thanksgiving, it should be this place where we're saying, hey, listen, I don't care if I look like a crazy person, but because of what Jesus has done for me, i got to raise my hands to him. And I just pray for us as a church that we grow in being more godly and honestly more biblical in our expressions of worship by being more expressive in how we show our emotions in worship. Let's not be scared to have thankful hearts. Let's show our thankful hearts. Because through doing that, not only do we honor God, but you know what happens? His word is now dwelling in us more richly. I got I to move on here, but, but it's important that we see that part of how God's word dwells in us richly is through us coming together and sharing God's word with one another and through singing truths about his word with emotion in our hearts. This is how God meets us in rich ways. But we come to our final point this morning with what Jesus wants for his church. He wants his love to define us, his character to shape us, his peace to rule us, his word to dwell in us. And finally, Jesus wants his name to motivate us. He wants his name to motivate us. Verse 17 tells us, whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. When someone says they want to make a name for themselves, what are they saying? They're saying they want to be seen as great. They're saying they want to be honored. They're saying they want to be respected. To show the world I'm not a nobody no more, right? Like Rocky, right? Make a name for themselves. And our culture makes a big deal about having a name. You know, social media, it's it's all about what? Being famous, you know, having a name, having a brand. And you can make, you know, there's, there's all kinds. I mean, dozens and dozens of books that come out every single year on leadership and how to create lasting legacies for yourself. But I just have to wonder, how, how long do we think our names are going to last? How long do we think our legacies are going to last? How, how long do we think our names are going to be remembered? As the Phillies chaplain, something I do sometimes to the players is I'll ask them, who was the MVP five years ago of the league? Or I'll ask them, who won the World Series five years ago? Now, these are professional athletes who are literally dedicating their whole lives towards being the MVP and winning World Series. And they'll have a hard time at the drop of a hat knowing who did that just five years ago. And I've yet to meet one who can tell me that accurately ten years ago. How quickly our names, the accolades that we chase, fade. But there's one name that will never fade. There's one who is truly worthy of respect. There's one who's truly worthy of appreciation. There's one who's really worthy of all the praise and honor that we could ever give him. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that all of history is building towards this climactic moment where at the name of Jesus, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that he alone is Lord. And so what verse 17 is telling us is that God doesn't want us to waste any time. He wants us to start living for that great day today. He doesn't want us to wait to the end of time when we have to confess that Jesus is Lord and declare his greatness. No, he wants us to live today with that that desire in our hearts that I want to live today to show that the name of Jesus is above every other name. 
Our lives are not to be used to make a name for ourselves, a name that will quickly fade. No, we are to use our lives, to use all that we've been given by God with our abilities, with our time, with our finances, with our everything to honor his name, the only name that really matters. Whatever we do, in word or deed, do it all in his name. So the choices that we make, the question we should ask ourselves is how does this reflect on Jesus? Think about your relationships with your coworkers, conversations that you have. Is the name of Christ being honored or compromised? Think about your finances, how you choose to spend your money. Is your comfort and convenience being chased or are you giving generously to kingdom purposes so that the name of Christ might go forward? Right? How, we, how we think about very simple things like, like, like what we give to and like what we say in our conversations tomorrow. Like whatever we do in word or deed, it's meant to be controlled by this one thought. Friends, this is as practical as it gets. How are we to live each moment of our lives? We're to live with the name of Jesus on our hearts. And how is this reflecting on him? Now, we don't obviously always do that perfectly. This is meant to be aspirational. But friends, I pray that we hear God inviting us into a great life today. A great life. We get to live what really matters. We get to live. You know, you know what this is saying to you? You know what it's saying to me? Every moment of our lives is significant. And there's no one who doesn't matter. You matter because you can live for the thing that most truly matters, making the name of Christ great. And so whether you drive a trash truck or you own the trash truck company. In God's economy, it doesn't matter. Your life has significance because you can glorify God and make his name great by picking up trash for his glory or by running the company for his glory. We'll get into that more next week when we look at roles that God has for us and how we promote his glory in our lives. But friends, what we need to see for our point today is that Jesus wants this for his church. He wants his name to motivate us because this is what keeps us moving in the same direction. We all have we're different people, but we all have one common goal. That in all things, Christ might be magnified through us. And so as we come to a close, Mike Krzyzewski, who for those of you who don't know, was one of the greatest college basketball coaches of all time. Even if you don't like Duke University, uh, which I do not have a particular affinity for, more of a North Carolina man myself, um, but he's still undeniably one of the greatest coaches of all time. And he said that he would start the year, he just recently retired, but he'd start every season the same way. He goes starters together, and he'd say, hold out your hands. You have five fingers, and there are five of you. And each of you as an individual, you're different, and you have different strengths. And if you go through the season focusing on your individuality, I promise you, you'll not be able to do anything significant. You might poke at some goals, but that's, best, that's the best that a finger by itself can do is poke at things. But if you come together in the various strengths that you have, and if you come together as one, a closed fist is a powerful thing. Friends, today God is showing us that we are individual people who have individual strengths and by ourselves, honestly, we can't do much to further God's purposes. The best we can hope for is maybe just to poke Satan in the eye a little bit. 
But when Jesus brings us together, and his love defines us, and his character shapes us, and his peace rules us, and his word dwells in us, and his name motivates us, the unifying power of Christ is what makes us into a redemptive force for his kingdom. And so what I'm wondering is, what is Jesus going to find when he returns and sees his church? I hope what he finds is people who have been diligently and carefully seeking to follow his instructions that he has left for what he wants for us. That he would see people have come together in a unique way, in a way that no one else comes together in anything else in the world. He would see his church unify, living for his glory. May that be what God does here. May what God does around the world for the praise of Christ. Let's bow our heads in prayer.